So Andrew jokes that that's not the preach for this morning, but kind of is. <laughs> it's like he looked at my notes. <laughs> no, I just like, it's amazing the way that God orchestrates everything. Like even Michelle, um, Michelle and Tristan praying. Thank you. That's what husbands are for. The what? Manipulation. No. So when I asked God where to start this morning, because it felt a little bit overwhelming, and I was like, where on earth do I start? I know what God has put on my heart, but where do I start? And I felt like He said, start at the beginning. So, you know. Um, So I went back to the beginning. I went to the very beginning of my Bible, and I was like, how did this? How did this whole thing start? Like, how, where did it start? And we serve a creative, artistic God, and that's how He starts our story. He, he breathes light into the world. He speaks light into the world, and with light colors, and He creates plants and trees, and the trees bear fruit and grass and every beautiful thing that you can possibly imagine. He creates this absolute paradise, this, this world that's beyond anything we could ever have dreamt up. And then he creates Adam and Eve and he puts his design, his stamp on them and he makes us in his image and from every detail, from our fingerprints to the way our eyes work is phenomenal and he, he creates this. And then one of my favorite parts in this story of creation is that he doesn't just create the world and create Adam and Eve and like, okay, cool. The word tells us that he plants a garden for them. And I just had this picture of God like digging out a hole and planting a tree and planting which flowers he wanted. And Cora and Julian brought these flowers this morning like they knew. <laughs> so I have them. So he, he actually plants a garden for us, like specifically, intentionally. It's not just, oh, you know, he created everything. He went and planted this garden for Adam and Eve. And then he took them and he put them in this garden. And he was like, I've created this space for you. I'm placing you into, this is your home. This is this special place that I've designed for you. And in this garden, I can't think of a better picture of peace. And peace, like Andrew described last week, not just the absence of war, but this absolute tranquility and harmony and peace beyond what we can possibly comprehend. And they walked with God, and God walked with them in this garden, and it was perfect. And, yeah, there was just this harmony and this flourishing. Well, the sound went weird. Anyway, um, and then Satan came in with a lie. And the core of the lie, the, if you break it down to, like, the foundation of what it was, the lie was that God can't be trusted. His lie was... You know, are you sure God really said that? Like, is that actually going to happen? You know, and that was what Adam and Eve bought into. That was the lie that we believed, that God can't be trusted. That although he had put us in this perfect paradise with everything we could possibly need, we can't trust what he says. And so immediately in that moment of believing that God can't be trusted, that peace was shattered and into the world came every opposite of peace that we can think of, war, injustice, anxiety, fear, worry, all of these things that are the opposite of peace came in all at once. 
and so did the peace that they shared with each other. Before this, Adam and Eve had lived in perfect peace with one another and with God. And anybody who's married or has any kind of friendship or relationship with anybody knows that we don't live at peace with each other. And when they believe that lie that God can't be trusted, Adam immediately blames his wife. Immediately there's this immediately there's this breakdown of peace with between Adam and Eve and God, but also between between each other. And so they have to leave this perfect garden. God says, I can't allow you to live here forever in this broken state, eating from the tree of life. I love you too much to let you live and eat from this tree of life and be in this state forever. I don't want that for you for eternity. I have something more for you because that wasn't his plan for us. And so he, they leave the garden and at the entrance to the garden, he places cherubim and he places a flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life. That's going to become relevant later. So I'm going to try, try my best to answer two really, really big questions today. And the first one is, we live outside of this garden. We live outside of this perfect peace and harmony in a world that offers us absolutely no reason to have peace. There is nothing about this world that would give us any reason to be at peace at all. So if we live in that world, how do we still live with peace inside of us when there is no peace around us? And the second one was, how do we get back to a place of having peace with one another? Because we can't have peace with each other if we don't have peace in ourselves first. But also, it doesn't help if we have peace with ourselves, but you know, I'm just here in my little peaceful bubble and I can't be peaceful with anybody around me. So this idea of a garden just kept coming back to me. Um, and I loved how Andrea and Tristan prayed like about seeds growing and this cultivation because um, in Galatians 5, 22, it speaks about the fruits of the spirits. One of the fruits of the spirits is peace. And so it just gave me this picture of peace as being a fruit. And a fruit is something that grows. It's not something that just appears. And as much as you can't force a fruit to grow, okay, an apple tree can't just go like, okay, I'm going to produce apples. Um, and in the same way, we can't just go through some checklist of, you know, I'm going to get my calendar in order and I'm going to get my meal plan in order and I'm going to, you know, make sure everything is perfectly scheduled and my house is perfectly clean and my kids' activities are sorted and, 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 and then I'm going to have peace. It, we can't force it. It's not something that we can just produce by, by striving or by trying. In fact, we usually land up doing the exact opposite when we try and strive for everything to be in place. So it's a fruit that we can't force to grow. Okay, and Jesus tells us that he is the vine and we are the branches and apart from him we can do nothing. So we can't just produce this fruit outside of God, outside of Jesus. It's something that we have to be in him for this fruit to grow. But at the same time, a garden needs to be cultivated. Okay, anyone who has tried growing anything, <laughs> I fail horribly sometimes. But things don't just grow without being cultivated. You know, you can't force that tomato plant to give you tomatoes, but if you don't cultivate it and nurture it and care for it, it's not going to grow. It needs the right conditions and care for it to be able to grow. 
And so I believe very strongly that we, all of us, no matter how different we are, and we're all so different, we are all gardeners at heart, okay? And we love, we love to watch things grow. Whether it's a business like Rajesh, like I've watched Rajesh's business flourish over the years. It's, it's such a joy to start something and nurture it and care for it and put time and effort into it and watch it grow. If it's your kids, you know, you nurture them, you protect them, you love them, you do everything in you to try and get them to grow up in the best way possible. You know, if you go to the gym, you want to see progress. You want to see that I'm putting in efforts and I'm nurturing this and I'm taking care of my body and I'm eating well and then there is something that grows. So regardless of what it is that we are cultivating, we are called to cultivate something. But what we cultivate is important. And so when we cultivate something, not only do we give that thing what it needs, we also work at destroying what will destroy that thing. So giving something what it needs, I water my plants, I give them fertilizer, I care for them, but I also protect them from the things that will cause them harm. So if there's bugs and caterpillars eating my plants, sorry guys, I kill them, um, we, we get rid of, we eradicate things that we know are going to damage what we are trying to cultivate. And so I believe that our minds are the biggest garden that we have in our lives. And the only way that we can cultivate peace in our hearts so that we can share it with others is if we cultivate it in our own minds. And the first thing we have to do is we have to water it. We have to, we have to put in good. And so Jesus tells us that he is the living water. Those who come to him will never thirst again. And so we water our minds with God's word. We, we pour in what we know is good and right and true. And we also make sure that we guard ourselves against what will not help us to cultivate peace in our minds. We, we protect our minds against the things that we know are not of God and are going to come and destroy and kill our peace. Because we know, God tells us, that the enemy comes to kill and destroy. And you're trying to cultivate something, you're trying to cultivate this peace and water it with God's word and spend time with him to nurture this peace inside of you. And the enemy is going to come with lies and accusations and all these negative things to try and kill and destroy your peace. And so we, we have to be at guard against that. We can't, we can't expect that it's not going to happen. We know it's going to happen. God tells us it's going to happen. He's, he's prepared us for it happening. He warned us in advance. It's not a surprise. And even um, in the Garden of Eden, when God sends... Adam and Eve out, he places this flaming sword to guard the garden. And the garden of our minds, I believe the flaming sword, like it speaks about in Ephesians 6, where it speaks about the armor of God, it tells us that the sword of the spirit is God's word. And so God's word is this flaming sword that we use to protect the garden of our minds against the attacks of the enemy against the way that he tries to come in with lies and accusations and things that we know are not true and are not of God. And even Psalm 119 echoes this. It says, Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. So we know that if we want to have this, 
We want to get back to the garden. We want to get back to God's original design, His perfect plan for how He created us and how He wanted the world to be. The only way we can do that is by soaking ourselves in God's Word, soaking ourselves in the promises that He speaks over us. And it's not just like a gentle sprinkle, like, you know, I sprinkle my garden for five minutes and then the sun evaporates it. It's this deep, penetrating, soaking water that reaches to the depths of who we are. And that it can only come from going back to Adam and Eve, walking with God. Because when they walked with God and they were, they were in His presence constantly, 24-7, and we need to invite God in to walk with us that in our day, it's not just when we're sitting reading our Bibles, it's when you're at work interacting with your colleagues, it's when you're packing the dishwasher, it's when you're stuck in traffic and that dude just pulls in front of you and you kind of want to swear at him. It's all those moments of like, am I aware that God is walking next to me and am I allowing his word and what he says about me to soak into who I am? so that this peace can grow inside of me. And so we need to water that garden, but then we also need to protect it from what is not true. And I had this picture this week of, I actually got angry because I was like, no man, how can Satan do this? But I had this picture of how, how quickly he convinces us of that age old lie that God cannot be trusted. And in almost every, almost every day, I find myself believing that lie in some form or another. And one of the biggest ways is comparison. And we know that comparison is the thief of joy. The Bible tells us this. But when, before you can have joy, you need to have peace. I feel like it comes, it's almost like a progression. And as soon as we sit and we're comparing ourselves to everybody else, we are allowing Satan to to convince us of this lie that God cannot be trusted. God cannot be trusted because that person has more financial, you know, they're in a better financial situation than I am, so obviously I can't trust them with my finances. Or, you know, okay, that person drives that car, or that person has kids and I'm struggling to have kids, or that person, you know, that person, their job is going really, really well, and I just have this conflict at work the whole time. And so we sit and we compare ourselves to everybody else and we believe this lie that God cannot be trusted. And the thing is, we are very quick, we're very quick to spot an, an external attack. We very quickly go, you know, okay, that person at work is fighting with me. Yeah, I'm really just being attacked. Or, you know, we're struggling with our finances. I really feel like it's an attack from the devil. Or this is not going well in my life. I feel like it's an attack. And I'm not saying that that is not the case sometimes, but I feel like sometimes we lose this battle in our mind. It's almost like the devil doesn't even need to come and, you know, create disunity or ruin something in your life because we've already convinced ourselves, we've already believed this lie that no matter what my circumstances are like, like actually I deserve better and actually God can't be trusted because he hasn't given me what I actually feel I deserve. And if, if Satan can convince us of this, if he can rob us of our peace by convincing us that surely this must be, there must be more to this. Surely my life should be going better. This should be easier. We've already lost that battle in our mind because, you know, we've already de decided that God can't be trusted and what is the point? 
And so that is why we have to be so vigilant about guarding our minds and being so careful about what we choose to believe and what we choose to, to, take, to take on ourselves. Um, and I think part of the way that Satan does this as well is that he convinces us that God promised us something different to what he actually did promise us. And even back in the garden when um, Adam and Eve took and ate of that fruit, if you go and read it carefully, he actually twists what God has said. He, he asks them, like, did God actually say this? And it wasn't, it was a twisting of what God had said. And so I think sometimes we, we take that on ourselves. We believe that God has given us a promise that he actually sometimes hasn't. And God has given us many promises. He has promised us so many things. He's promised us that he loves us. He's always with us. He never leaves us. But sometimes we believe that things are almost owed to us or that God has promised them to us when he maybe hasn't done that. Um, and in, in John 13, Jesus is speaking to his disciples just before his death. And when you read it, it almost reads like a, like a last cram session before a final exam. It's, you get this impression of Jesus's, you know, he's walked in peace. That's my biggest impression of Jesus. But in these last moments, it's like he's desperately trying to impart these last like gems of wisdom that just hold on to this. And he speaks to them. And when he speaks to them, he reminds them of all these things he's taught them before. He reminds them to love each other, to keep his commands. And then he tells them what's going to happen. He tells them that he's going to be crucified. He tells them they are going to experience great mourn, mourning and grief and loss and sorrow and trials and tribulations and persecution. He tells them that they're going to be badly treated. They're not going to be accepted by the world. They're going to have difficulties. And he ends, but he reminds them, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. He tells us it's not going to be easy. He does not promise us that our life is going to go smoothly and everything is going to work out and it's always going to be fine. The, the very last things that he imparts to his disciples is that it's going to be tough, guys. It's going to be hard. There's going to be days when you don't understand why and everything hurts and nothing is working out the way you thought it would. He tells us that that's going to happen, but he ends with, I'm giving you peace. And so it just clears up this whole thing of peace. Is not, it's not about our circumstances. It's not about what's going on around us because there is always going to be some or other storm in our lives, no matter what. I've never met anybody who's like, no, my life's great. Nothing, nothing bad has ever happened. Nothing's going wrong. Everything is perfect. Maybe for a little bit, maybe for a short while. But we live in a broken, sinful world. We live in a world that has fallen. And so we can't expect, we can't try and hold on to a promise that wasn't given. The promise was that you will have peace in the midst of this. I will give you my peace. And that's why it says it's peace that transcends all understanding because it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that you can be at peace when your kids are being bullied at school. It doesn't make sense that you can be at peace when you've been waiting and waiting and waiting on something and it's just not happening. It does make sense to have peace when someone really close to you is taken away and it doesn't make sense. None of it, it doesn't make sense for us to have peace. But that's what makes us different because we have this hope that 
that Jesus has promised us this peace and he has given us all the tools. He's told us how to cultivate this peace. He's told us how to nurture our minds that peace can grow there without being affected by the storms that go on around us. And he says again, you know, that verse I just read, he says, peace I give you. And then again, he repeats it. He says, I've told you these things. And the things he's referring to is all the terrible stuff that's going to happen to him. He goes, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. That doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense in the natural that I'm telling you all these horrible things that are going to happen so that you can have peace. But that's how God works because he says, in this world, we will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So he promises us that it's going to be hard and it's going to be tough, but I have overcome this and I will be with you in the middle of it. I will, though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and sometimes that's really literal, and it can be death of loved ones, it can be death of dreams, it can be death of relationships, it can be death of so many things, but he walks with us through it and he gives us peace in the midst of those circumstances. And we don't want to believe this lie that Satan just keeps using the same old one, that God is not trustworthy and we can't trust him. But we have to replace it with something. If we're not going to believe this, we have to hold on to what does God actually say? If this is not true, what do I replace it with? What do I hold on to instead in those moments when it's really tough? What do I dwell on? Where do I go to in the word to find, to find that peace in the midst of extraordinary difficulty? And Andrew used this verse last week, and I, I love it because it, it, gives us, it gives us such practical tools. It's Philippians 4, verse 7 to 9. It says, And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. So sandwiched between these promises of peace is an instruction to dwell on the good, dwell on the positive, dwell on God's promises. And science has shown us this. They've shown that the more you think positively, you actually rewire the parts in your brain. You train your brain to default to the positive. And the more you focus on the negative, you train your brain to default to the negative. And so, coming back to my, my garden analogy, um, I had a picture of it like a trellis. So, I have done this before where I bought this beautiful plant, it was a jasmine, that um, it's a vine and it grows and it kind of just went wild because I didn't train it. It just, it was everywhere and it was falling over and it looked horrible. And I realized, I'm like, if I don't put a trellis there and train this plant around this trellis, it's not going to grow the way I want it to. And so, in the same way, we have to train our thoughts around God's truth. One of the biggest things that I struggled with um, as a child was my thoughts. 
I was angry, I was frustrated, I wanted to argue with everything and my biggest battle was always in my mind because sometimes I was too clever for my own good and I thought I, I always had an answer and I always had a, an answer back and okay but this and okay but that and my thoughts would run away with me and my dad read me this verse um, in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5 where it speaks about how we take every thought captive and we make it obedient to Christ. And I think sometimes we make the mistake of putting our own thoughts and feelings and desires, we place them superior to God's truth. And I had to learn as a young child, and I still have to practice it daily, that my thoughts are subject to God's truth. My emotions are subject to God's truth. I know for a fact, Barry knows as well, I can't trust my own emotions. My emotions change from minute to minute sometimes, for reals. And they can be very big and very strong and very overpowering. And if I don't focus on taking that trellis of God's truth and training my thoughts and being like, you will be subject to what God has said. And when a thought comes into my mind that tells me, you're not good enough, you don't have what it takes, you've messed up, I'm like, uh-uh. God says, I am enough. God says, he has made me righteous in Christ. God says, I am his daughter. God says, I'm loved. God says, God says, God says. And you, you fight that. It's literally like standing there with the sword, the sword of God's word. And you fight those lies. And it's a battle. It's not easy. Sometimes it's literally daily, by minute by minute, making that choice of, this is not what God says about me. This is not what God says about this other person. This is not what God says about this situation. I'm going to train my thoughts around this trellis of God's truth. And I'm going to teach my mind to focus on what God says is true. Because if we don't do that, our minds run wild. And they, they, we get completely carried away. And if we don't have some kind of truth, something to build our lives around, we are swayed by every wind, we're swayed by every opinion, we're swayed by every viewpoint or every new ideology that comes in. We have to have this trellis of God's truth that we, we go back to the whole time. And when there's something, you know, when there's a little piece of that vine that's not growing the way I want it to, something that's not of God, a thought that's not of God, I cut it off. And we have to do that. We have to go, this thought is not of God. I'm either going to train it and make it subject to what God says is true, or I'm going to cut it off. Because if we don't cultivate our minds and we don't water it and nurture it and train it to create an environment of peace, it is not going to happen by itself. It is not something that comes naturally at all. It's incredibly difficult. And so we know that... This is how we get peace in ourselves. We have to go to God. We have to go to the Word daily and be like, what does God say? I'm submitting myself to what He says is true. Not what my friend says is true or what this person says is true. What, what does God say? What does God say is true? And when we are at peace within ourselves because we have received God's truth and we have trained our mind to be subject to God's truth, then and only then, can we go out and take peace to people around us? We all know that if you are not at peace in yourself, it directly impacts the way that you are with others. If I've had a bad morning and I'm rushed and I'm stressed, I'm probably going to hoot at that guy in traffic and I'm definitely not going to let him in. And if I've had a peaceful morning, 
and I'm at peace within myself and I spend time with God and my own life feels tranquil, I'm way more likely to be like, okay, you go do this one. Like, you're clearly in a rush. Be free. Go. And it's the same with anything. Anyone who has kids or interacts with kids, you know the way that you interact with your child is so dependent on how you are feeling. And we want to be good parents and we want it to not be dependent on our own emotions, but most of the time it is. You know, if your child does something that's really annoying and you've told them not to do it a hundred times and you're having a really peaceful day and you've spent time with God and you're in a good place, you have that capacity, you have that patience to respond to them lovingly, to be gentle, to be kind, to bring correction in a loving way. When you are not at peace in yourself, you're going to snap at them. And it's so we can see this in people all around us. You can see if somebody's at peace or not by the way that they interact. Sometimes they don't even need to speak. You can see it in the way they walk, in the way they carry themselves. And we have to get back to this place of having peace with one another. It's not enough to live in this little bubble of, okay, I've got peace in myself. Nobody talk to me. Nobody come near me because you're definitely going to burst my bubble of peace. <laughs> that would be, some days it feels like that would be wonderful. But we are actually called, I love the way that Quirbus puts it, he, we are called to bring the kingdom wherever we go. So I don't get to have the privilege of just being in my little bubble of peace and no one can talk to me and you better not burst my bubble of peace. Because we, we're called to something beyond that. We are called to take that peace where we go. And it's almost like a badge or a symbol of the kingdom that we represent. And we know that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And if he's the Prince of Peace, that means his kingdom is a kingdom of peace. And if we are going to carry the kingdom and we are going to take the kingdom wherever we go, we need to be taking peace with us wherever we go. And... Even um, where it speaks about the, the armor of God, I somehow for many, many years have missed the one of the shoes of the gospel of peace. I don't know, maybe because as you can tell, I don't like wearing shoes. So, but if we are wearing the shoes of the gospel of peace, that means everywhere we walk, everywhere we go, everywhere we interact with somebody, every room that we step into, we should be carrying this peace with us. It should be tangible. People should feel it. And if you think about it, you'll probably be able to think of somebody who you, you notice that with. You, there are certain people who, when you are around them, you immediately feel at peace. And I'm, I'm really blessed because mine is my husband. I, he is my, my space of peace. And I think anyone who knows him knows that when he walks into a room, he carries a peace with him. And he wasn't always like that, Oscar's sister. <laughs> okay, but it's because he has he diligently waters his mind with God's word. He cultivates peace in himself. And it doesn't it might look like it comes naturally to somebody. It doesn't. It's it's this training, this this I'm gonna push in, I'm gonna pursue peace, I'm going to make sure that I everything I do is that I wanna bring peace. And then when you walk into a room, People feel that peace. And in this world, we need peace so desperately. People are not at peace. People are busy and overworked and tired and stressed and anxious about their kids and anxious about their marriages and anxious about what's going to happen in our country and what's going to happen in the world. And people need this peace. And we have the privilege of carrying it within us. 
And I like this also. Matthew 5 verse 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers. And I, I, I said to Barry this morning, Blessed are the peacemakers, not the conflict avoiders. <laughs> and, <laughs> and for some of us, conflict is easier than other people. Okay, so my struggle is, my struggle of peace in my life is, I'm, a, I'm not a flight person, I'm a fight person. And so my struggle is I have to train myself to respond peacefully, to be like, how would Jesus respond to this? Okay, Barry's struggle is that he would rather just not deal with it at all. But at the end of the day, when we do that, we don't bring peace either. Um, I was teaching my kids history a while ago, and I was describing to them after this one battle, there's sort of peace between the countries, but it's not really peace because they're kind of both just anxiously waiting for the other one to attack, and it's this awkward tension. And I think sometimes we, we like to believe that you know, well, I didn't start it and I'm not fighting, so there's peace between us. But we know that, like Andrew said, shalom, that peace, it goes so much deeper than that. It's not just an absence of conflict. It's not just an absence of fighting. And so we can't get away from it by just avoiding, avoiding encounters with people who disagree with us or who have a different idea or who've done something that hurts us. And James 3 verse 17 says, But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. So sowing peace is not just avoiding conflict. It is actively going into situations where there is not harmony and there is not unity and being like, I am wearing the full gospel, the full armor of God. I am wearing these shoes of peace and I'm going to bring peace into this situation. I'm not just going to avoid the situation because it doesn't feel like a peaceful situation. We have to bring the peace. And just before this verse, he's actually speaking about the tongue and the damage that it can cause. And so he speaks about this, this destructive damage that our words can have if we're not careful, the hurt and yeah, the deep hurt that we can bring with our words and our tongue if we're not careful about what we say. And if our tongue is not subject, it hasn't been trained around that trellis of God's truth. And then he says, it is, this wisdom is first pure, then peace-loving, considerate. When we go, I want peace with that person. Are we just going, well, and I'm not going to fight with them because they're wrong? Or are we being considerate of how they feel? Are we being considerate of how something we say might affect them? Have we thought about, is this something that might be a sensitive topic for somebody? Um, and it's hard. It's, it's training our minds to be aware of things. And I've had instances recently where I've said things, and it's something I struggle with. I will say things and not realize the, the damage that I'm causing because... I haven't thought about it and I haven't gone, could this cause hurt? Could this cause, could this really offend somebody else? And then we have to go back and we have to bring peace and we have to be like, look, I'm sorry. I spoke without thinking and that was wrong of me because we don't get to get away with just being like, oh, okay, I'm just going to avoid you and it's going to kind of be peaceful and we didn't fight about it. No, we have to go in and we have to bring peace in that situation. 
And I think sometimes we misunderstand, I know I do, we misunderstand the high, high standard that we are called to when it comes to bringing peace into situations. And one of my favorite verses, because I took it out of context, was um, Romans 12 verse 18. And it says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everybody. And I was like, awesome. It's my little bubble. As far as it's up to me, okay, so I didn't do anything. I was right. I didn't, I'm not fighting with you. So as far as it's up to me, we're living at peace. I didn't start it, so I'm in the right. And I completely, maybe on purpose, misread that verse because I was like, well, as long as it's up to me. So I didn't do anything. I didn't start the conflict. It's not my problem. God calls us to a much, much higher standard than that. And I found these verses. Hebrews 12, verse 14. And I read it in a few different translations, maybe hoping for um, it to say something different, but it doesn't. Um, so it either says, make every effort to live at peace with everyone, or work at living in peace with everybody, or strive for living at peace with everybody. That is not, uh, I'm going to sit back in my peaceful little bubble and I don't agree with you, so I'm just not going to talk to you to maintain my own peace. That is, it's an effort. It's a conscious, I see something is weird with me and this person. And it's hard, it's really hard to do that. But we are called to that because we're called to this high standard of I'm going to go and I'm going to work and strive and as far as I can, absolutely everything I can do, I'm going to do everything I can to fix it. I'm not just going to go, well, you know what, I've done a lot and actually maybe they should try now. No, God calls us to more than that. And it's hard. It's not an easy path to walk. And it's not one that you get right straight away. I'll come back to you in like 20 years if I ever get it right. But it's, it's a constant work in progress. It's a constant choosing peace and choosing to pursue peace, not just hope it will come. And Ephesians 4 verse 3 also says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. So we should be making every effort that we can to keep the unity between us. Um, Colossians 3 verse 15 also says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And all of us, we're part of a community with people that are very different from us, that have different cultures, different backgrounds, different upbringings, different ideas of what's okay and what isn't. And it's this thing of striving for peace, working at how can I have peace with someone who comes from a different background from me? How can I have peace with someone who does stuff that really irritates me because it's really different to how I would do it? And we have to go back to the beginning, back to this garden where we walked with God and we soak our minds with this peace and this truth. And can someone hand out communion? Um, because one of the biggest things that's helped me in this, because this is a difficult journey for me, and it's kind of ironic that I'm preaching on it because I'm not good at it. But one of the biggest things that helped me is I was in a, a church service like years ago, and the pastor made us just stop and he handed out communion. And he said, you know what? We need to learn to just be still. And it, that moment touched me so much that I have it tattooed on my arm, be still. Because when we are still before God, when we put ourselves at peace 
And we don't go, okay, but you don't know how rough the week's been. Okay, but you don't know this. Okay, but you don't know this. Okay, I know. I know. Be still. Because God tells us, be still and know that I am God. God knows all of that stuff. And when we just still and we, we calm ourselves in his presence and we allow what he says about us and the truth that he speaks over our situations to, to just pour out over us and to just bring that soft, gentle... God is a soft, gentle God. It's not a, it's not a you must fix this. It's a soft, gentle... Hello, my leafy. Thank you. It's a motorbike. It's this soft, gentle, just let it wash over you. And when we let that peace wash over us, we allow God's, we allow this peace to grow in our hearts. And then when we have come out of God's presence and we're now walking and he's still walking next to us, but we're going into this crazy turmoil world of chaos, we don't, that chaos doesn't affect our peace that's in our hearts. We bring peace into the chaos because we have sat and we've been still before God and we've allowed him to grow that peace inside of us. So I think just you know, like just take a few moments and just, just be still and just allow the knowledge that God knows everything you're going through. He knows how hard it is. You know, Jesus didn't have money. He was homeless. He didn't have a place to live. He was persecuted everywhere he went. And he still was able to sleep in the middle of a storm, even though he knew what was coming. So just take a few moments to just be still before God and allow him to speak his truth and his promises.